Psalm 67. I want you to help me read this psalm. So I'm going to read it, but when we come to verse 3 and verse 5, I want you to join out loud with me. So I'll, I'll read verse 1 and verse 2, and then you'll come in with me and say, Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Verse 3 and verse 5 serve as the refrain or main point of the psalm. It's what the congregation of Israel might repeat in worship. So hear now the almighty, glorious words of our King. Psalm 67. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. This is the word of God. John Piper in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, famously has said this about missions. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions exist because worship doesn't. The thesis of this great missionary book is that global missions in our day is necessary because God does not receive the worship due his name. It put, God, it put God and his glory at the very center of missions, at the very heart of missions. Well, what is global missions, you might ask? Well, simply put, it's this. Our obedience to the Great Commission to establish healthy churches among every tribe, tongue, and nation for the glory of God. Global missions is our obedience to the Great Commission to establish healthy churches among every tribe, tongue, and nation for God's glory. And friends, this is what we will consider in this great missionary psalm in Psalm 67. The psalmist puts the glory of God and the worship of all nations here at the center. Psalm 67 was most likely written by a king or priest in Israel, and it was given to the choir master. The choir master would lead the congregation, and this would be sung in congregational worship. The refrain in verse 3 and verse 5 serve as the main point of this psalm. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The main point of this psalm is the global worship of our King. He is worthy to be praised from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. What is so, what's so amazing about this passage is that the psalmist tells us that God intends to use us, his blood-bought people, his ordinary means of grace to accomplish extraordinary plan of redemption. God plans to use us, his people, to accomplish his salvation of every tribe, tongue, and nation. So how do we, 
as a congregation pray like this? How do we have a heart like God for his glory among all nations? Well, the psalmist gives us three petitions. Three petitions that are the very heart of God for his glory among all the earth. First, we see that we pray for a glorious purpose. We pray for a glorious purpose. We're going to see this in verse 1 to 2. The heart of global missions begins in the most unlikely of ways. Listen to the psalmist's praise in verse 1. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way, O God, may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Global missions begins with God's blessing. Be gracious to us. Make your face shine upon us. Now, why does the psalmist pray this way? I don't know about you, but my prayers for the global advance of God's kingdom does not normally start this way. Okay, the Bosniak Muslims need the gospel. Bless us, this local church in Sharjah, so that they might be blessed. Why does this great psalm begin with a call for God's blessing? It's because the author knows his Bible. He knows the heart of God, which is revealed in the covenant of God. You see, the psalmist grounds this prayer in the covenant that God made with Israel. And we know this because the psalmist used the blessing of the covenant found in number six. So turn with me to number six. Number six. Here we have instructions that further explain congregational worship that was prescribed at Mount Sinai. So, after the high priest would offer atoning sacrifice for sins, he would turn to the people of Israel and he would bless the congregation with this benediction. Psalm uh, number 6, verse 22 to 27. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. So when the people would hear this benediction, so remember, they're in the congregation, they're in the assembly of the elect. Sacrifice for sins have just been made by the high priest, and he blesses them with his benediction. And as they hear this, all the things that are tied to the covenant will be running through their minds. They would remember all that God had done for them at Exodus. They would remember God's gracious provision of that Passover lamb that was slain, that lamb that was slain for their curse, the curse of death that they rightly deserved. They would remember God's glorious presence as a pillar of fire led them out of Egypt to Mount Sinai. They would reflect on God's covenant. They would remember hearing the ten words, the ten commandments at Mount Sinai. 
They would remember his gracious promises of his presence and his blessing. They would know that God redeemed them out of Egypt. For what reason? For what purpose? So that they might be a blessing to all peoples. Remember what God had promised to Abraham. They would have known Genesis 12, verse 2 to 3. God tells Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. Why? So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the people of Israel in the congregation would understand this, that they're being blessed by God with His grace, with His presence, with His glory, so that they might be a blessing and fulfill God's promise to Abraham. So the author of Psalm 67 is praying biblically. He understands God's purpose from the very beginning. God, even from Adam and Eve, His intent was to bless His people so that God's glory might be spread to the ends of the earth. So let me ask you, how do we pray this prayer? How do we pray this blessing rightly? Well, we see that the psalmist gives us four things to pray. First, we pray that God will be gracious to us. We see that in verse 1. May God be gracious to us. Friends, just like God was gracious to Israel... Just like he chose Israel, that, mo- that smallest nation on the earth, not because of anything good in them, so God chooses us, his blood-bought people. In Christ, under the new covenant, God is gracious to us Christians, to us in the local church. Friends, do you realize that the Christian life, from beginning to end, is all of grace? There's no part of your life that is not wholly dependent on God's grace. It's all grace all the time. There's nothing good that you can do to merit God's favor. So when we pray this way, when we're praying that God will be gracious to us, we're asking God to not treat us as our sins deserve. Under the new covenant, we're asking that God remember the sacrifice of that atoning lamb, that once-for-all sacrifice, Jesus Christ. We're asking him that he would remember that Jesus Christ paid it all on the cross, that he conquered our sins. He rose again and offers us the blessing of forgiveness and eternal life. Friends, we never move past the gospel. We, as Christians, are dependent on God's grace each and every single day. We must be like David in Psalm 51, who cries out when he sinned. He said, have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out all my transgressions. Friends, are you gripped by God's grace to you? Do you regularly ask God for forgiveness? Not through self-righteousness, not because of how good your quiet time is or how good your life is going, but all because of the cross. 
Do you cling to the cross every single day? We pray that God would be gracious to us because we are needy people in need of His mercy and grace. Friends, you have very little effectiveness in your Christian life if you're not daily gripped by God's grace in the gospel. Second, we see the psalmist pray for blessing. We see that again in verse 1. May God be gracious to us and bless us. The blessing of God is not found in your bank account. The blessing of God is not found in your health. The blessing of God is not in having that relationship or getting that job. The blessing of God is only found in Christ. It's only found in Christ. So as the psalmist is praying that God would bless him in light of the exodus, he's pointing forward to that new exodus when Christ would save a people and bless us with his presence, bless us with his love, bless us with eternal life. Friends, the only thing you and I deserve in this life is God's curse, the full measure of God's wrath and hell. When we ask that God will bless us, we are asking that he will fulfill all of his good and gracious promises. We're asking that God would lavish us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We're asking for the blessing of his mercy, the blessing of his love, the blessing of his joy, the blessing of his kindness, the blessing of his patience, the blessing of his provision, the blessing of his protection, the blessing of his holiness, the blessing of his peace, the blessing of obedience, the blessing of his glory, the blessing of eternal life, the blessing of of being in Christ, belonging to Christ, being adopted as a son of God and a fellow heir with him. When we pray this way, we are asking that the righteousness of Christ be realized in our lives. We're praying that the righteousness of Christ, what he accomplished in his righteous obedience, be realized, yes, in our marriages, yes, in our parenting, yes, in our singleness, yes, in our work, yes, in our money, yes, in our free time, yes, in our joys and our sorrows, but we are praying that we be like Christ. That is what we're praying for. Fundamentally, we're not praying just for a better marriage, we're praying for a Christ-like marriage. We're not praying for a better job. We're praying that we be Christ-like in whatever task God gives us. We're praying that we would love God with all the heart, soul, and mind and love one another as ourselves. Third, the third prayer, that God's face would shine upon us. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us. Now, this imagery comes clearly from the Exodus. It comes from Moses who talked with God face to face. Think about what Moses wrote in Exodus 34 verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, 
Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. His face shone brightly because the glory of God was shining upon him. In the Old Testament, this language of God's face most always refers to God's presence among God's people. We are praying for God's presence among God's people. We're praying that God would be our rock, our refuge, our strength. We're looking to Him to guard us, to provide for us, to keep us, and to lead us. He is like a good shepherd who tends to our every need and shines His glorious face upon us. Friends, if you are in Christ... The smile of God is always set towards you. There's nothing you can do to not be under God's smile. He looks at you just like He looks at Jesus Christ, His Son. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God loves you just like He loves Christ? That's what it means to be in Christ. To be unified, to be unified with Christ. He treats us not according to our sins, not according to our righteousness, but according to His beloved Son. He is for us and never against us in Christ. And when we pray this way, we're also praying that God would show us more of His glory. We're asking just like Moses did. He saw God's glory, and he's asking, God, show me your glory. Think about what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 17. He says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, we who are in Christ, who have the Spirit, who've been set free, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Friends, as we behold God's glory, we become like Him. We become like our God. We do not become gods, but we share in His holiness. In fact, we share in His, His Son's righteousness. And let me ask you, where, where do we behold the glory of God? Where do we do it? Do we assemble on a mountain and call down God to come in a pillar of fire? We see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We see the glory of God in Christ as revealed in the Scriptures. So friends, when we're asking that God would show us His glory and shine His face upon us, we're asking that He will show more of Christ's glory in the Scriptures. They would open our eyes to really behold these truths and believe these truths and obey these truths. And it's through these truths, it's through the Word of God, through the Gospel of Christ, that God's way is made known on the earth. That's our fourth prayer. We pray that God will be known on the earth. Look again at verse 2 that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all the nations. 
These two things are the same. God's way being known on earth and God's saving power among not just some nations, but all nations. So we're praying that God would bless us, bless us in Christ, so that God might show His glory to the ends of the earth. Think about what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. Think about what he says about us and what God has done in us. He says this, God has reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, uh, through Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespass against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. God making his appeal through us. So we have been reconciled to to God through Christ. And now he says that we are his kingdom ambassadors. That he makes his appeal to the nations who are in darkness. The nations who do not know Christ. The nations who are without hope. God makes his appeal through us. It's not us who saves, but we are the vessel, the jar of clay through whom the gospel shines forth and the message is proclaimed. It's the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation and is the gospel that the nations need. It's only through the gospel and having their eyes opened through the work of the Spirit that the nations can know God. All of us are born blind, blind in our sin. And we need to be regenerated through the powerful word of Christ. And this appeal that God is making through us as his ambassadors is not primarily individually. So yes, we are his individual ambassadors, but it's actually through local churches. Did you notice that the psalmist uses the first person, plural, us. Did you notice that? He doesn't pray, pray, may God be gracious to me, though he is. No, this prayer is, may God be gracious to us. Be gracious to us. And under the new covenant, the assembly of God's people, it's right here, in local churches. It's through God blessing local churches that he makes his appeal to the nations. It's through the establishment of local churches that God's way is known on the earth. It's through local churches that God's glory spreads over the earth like the water covers the sea. Friends, we the church, the assembly of the firstborn, make the gospel visible as we hear the gospel preached, as we believe this gospel, and as we obey it. The gospel is made visible as we hear the word preach, as we believe it, and as we obey it. I mean, think about it. Where do the nations witness God's saving power? Where, there's, where are there testimonies of rebels being made sons? The blind seeing the dead living. 
Is it not here? Where else will the nations turn to hear the gospel message? Is it not here? Paul says in 1 Timothy 3 that we, the church, are the pillar and buttress of the truth. It matters how we live because we uphold the gospel for the whole world to see. We, ordain, we, or we uh, make the, the gospel look beautiful through our obedience and through our faith. Jesus says in John 13 that the whole world will know that we belong to Christ as they witness our love for one another. Friends, there's no greater evangelistic program than the witness of the church. There's no Bible study or program or ministry better than this one. So let the nations see our faith. Let the nations hear our word. Let the nations see our love. When we pray this way, we pray that God will grow us as a church in Christ-likeness and that we will invite unbelievers to see the grace of God among us. So invite your friends here. Invite your unbelieving neighbors and coworkers here. And if they're unwilling to come to church, maybe invite them to your home and invite a couple other members where you can enjoy a meal together and talk about the good news of Christ. Or maybe, if you're having a hard time and you're constrained with your work, invite a couple members to eat lunch with you and introduce them to your coworkers and share the gospel there. Do whatever it takes to expose our unbelieving coworkers, schoolmates, and neighbors to the witness of this assembly. We pray that God would bless us, His church, so that His saving power might be known to all nations. Second, we pray with a joyful hope. We pray with a joyful hope. Look at verse 3. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Here when the author speaks of all peoples, he doesn't mean all mankind. He means all nations. Now, this is not a political nation as we think of today. In the Hebrew, it can mean a clan or a cluster of people grouped based on culture and language. Just think about the story of the Tower of Babel. Do you remember that story? you remember what happened? There was one people with one language, and they were united in one rebellion against God. So what did God do? He confused the languages of the earth. He confused the languages and spread them all over the earth. It says that the people spread into their lands, each with their own language, by their own clans, by their own nations. You see that in Genesis 10.5 and 11.9. So here, the psalmist is praying that God would receive worship from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. What does it mean that we pray this way? That we pray for the nations to be glad. We pray 
for them to worship God? Well, first, he tells us we pray for the global worship of God by praying that these nations will be glad in Him. We're praying for the joy of the nations. He says, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. We're praying that all peoples will make God their greatest treasure, their greatest delight. This word pair of gladness and joy, it implies this word picture of a jubilant celebration before God. Just, just think about King David. Think about when they brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. The daughter of Saul looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. We also read in 2 Samuel 6, 5, that David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals. This is a joyful celebration. It's a heartfelt response of joy in God. It's a response to seeing His glory. It is a delighting in God that is expressed or manifested in worship. And yes, we know from Romans 12 that worship is obedience in faith. But friends, our obedience to Christ also includes this gathering where the saints come in joyful song to God. The author of Hebrews tells us that when we gather in the name of Christ, we join that festal gathering, that joyful celebration. So friends, when we come every Sunday, we should be rejoicing with glad singing to God. Sundays in the UAE should be known not for the new weekend, but for the festal celebration of God's people in worship. Friends, when you treasure God, when He is your greatest delight, you cannot help but worship Him. And what does this do? What does it do when we find God as our great treasure? It glorifies God. It magnifies His name. In the words of John Piper, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. This is God's design. God created us. Think about the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Why, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God. To enjoy Him forever. But I wonder how many of us are daily delighting in Christ. How many of us can genuinely say each and every day, Christ is my supreme delight? You know, I find it strange when brothers tell me that they have a hard time expressing themselves, especially when it comes to spiritual things. You know, Pastor, it's hard for me to open up. Or, you know, Pastor, it's just not my culture or my personality to sing loudly. But then the next moment, you ask them about football, or chess, or barbecues. What happens? Very excited. Many of you can talk hours about the latest Marvel movie. But how do you respond when a brother or sister asks you about what you've been reading in God's Word that day? 
Brothers and sisters, I fear that many of us are distracted from the joy of the Lord, distracted from knowing Him as our delight. Where do you find yourself distracted from reading this life-giving Word, from coming into God's presence in prayer, from enjoying the fellowship of the saints? If there's anything distracting you, get rid of it. It's worthless. It's vain. It won't last. And come again to the fount of living water and eternal life. You see, we pray with hope, not because of us or our faithfulness. I think everyone in this room knows your own heart. You are prone to wonder. But guess what? We can pray with hope because of God's faithfulness, because of who God is and what He has done. He invites us to come and drink of this water, to find our joy in Him. Look again at verse 4. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. We can pray with hope that the nations, and that includes us, the nations here, the nations in this assembly, and the lost nations, we can pray with hope that all peoples will come to a saving knowledge of God. This is because of who God is and what God has done. The psalmist tells us that God is both a faithful judge and a gracious shepherd. He's a faithful judge and a gracious shepherd. Did you see that in the text? The reason that the nations can be glad, let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for, this is the reason, you judge the peoples with equity. You guide the nations upon earth. The reason the nations can be glad is because of who God is as judge. He judges the nations with equity. The word equity means to be level or upright. God uses a level scale to judge all peoples. doesn't matter where you're from, your skin color, ethnicity. He is a fair and equal judge. I don't have to tell you about the partiality you might face in this land because of your passports, because of your skin color, because of your IQ or your degree. But God is not like the nations. He is not like the corrupt judges of this world. I'll never forget a missionary in India once told me that about him trying to get a driver's license. So every time he would go and apply for a license, they would ask him for a bribe. And he would say no. He would not bribe. He would not pervert justice. He told me about one other missionary, this Western brother, who took two whole years just to get his driver's license, just because he refused to give a bribe. Or, as we heard last week with Dennis, when he gave his testimony about business in Almaty, bribe is the common currency in business. Maybe it's true here too. But God is not like them. He is the righteous judge. He perfectly rewards the righteous and judges the wicked. 
Proverbs 11.1 1 says, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. Psalm 58.11 says that mankind will say, Surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there's a God who judges on earth. We can rejoice and be glad, and we can pray for the nations to rejoice and be glad, because God is a righteous judge. But He also is a gracious shepherd. Do you see that in the text? For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Now, th- this should be stunning to you. God guiding the nations, God leading the nations upon the earth. Normally in the Old Testament, God is described as the shepherd of Israel. The language of leading or guiding is reserved for God leading his people through the wilderness to the promised land. Think about Psalm 78, verse 51. It says that God struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the first fruits of their strength in the tents of Ham. Then he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety so that they would not be afraid. But the sea overwhelmed their enemies, those pagan Gentiles. And he brought them to his holy land, to the mountain which his right hand had won. He drove out nations, pagan Gentiles, before them. He apportioned them for a possession and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. So normally in the Old Testament, when it talks about God leading, it's talking about his covenant people Israel. But here, what does the psalmist say? In Psalm 67, it doesn't say God will strike down the nations. It says that he leads them. He leads them like a shepherd. See, the psalmist is like Isaiah, looking forward to a day when a root of Jesse will stand as a signal for all peoples, and all nations will find their rest in him. So we see that God is a good judge. He's a gracious shepherd. This is the hope of the nations. This is the hope for us in prayer for the nations. Beloved saints, this is good news for you and me in a world full of idolatry. Just think about it. This is a prayer petition. This is a petition not just for us, but for all peoples on the earth to worship and be glad in God. But if you just spend two minutes thinking about the world, it would be very depressing. We don't see God being worshipped as He rightly deserves. We don't see global worship of God. We see all the peoples of the earth being handed over. They've exchanged the glory of God for the glory of created things. Think about the West being handed over to every unthinkable perversion of sexuality. Think about the East. It's full of gods made with their own hands. Almost one billion Hindus in India. 500 million Buddhists in East Asia. Over two billion Muslims in North Africa and Middle East. Every tribe, tongue, and nation is not worshiping God. They're being devoted to themselves. They're building up idols of money 
and sex and comfort. They're making gods of family and heritage and culture. They're making idols crafted after their image and their likeness, what they love the most. Friends, this is the hopeless state of man apart from Christ. You see, God is a righteous judge. He will reward the righteous, but he will also judge the wicked. And we see in Romans 3, no one is righteous. No, not one. Every single tribe, tongue, and nation has rejected God and is worthy of his just execution, his eternal judgment in hell. Where is our hope? Why do we pray, let the nations be glad if God will judge them? We have hope because of all of where all of redemptive history is pointing to. You see, it is true that no one is righteous, no one born on earth, but the man of heaven. He is perfectly righteous. Jesus Christ, who came from heaven to earth, being fully God and fully man, took on flesh, and he obeyed his Father perfectly. Never a day of sin. He faced every single temptation known to man, but he never gave in to sin. He delighted in God and treasured God and saw the glory of God in a life of obedience and worship. And we see a picture of this one. We hear the hope of this one in that passage that was read earlier from Revelation 5. Listen to the hope of the nations. Listen to why we can pray for the nations to be glad in God. Revelation 5 verse 5. The Apostle John writes, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Our prayers. Our prayers. And what did heaven break out in singing? What did they say? when he took the scroll. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed, that's you purchased a people for God from every tribe and tongue and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Jesus Christ is the hope of the nations. Jesus Christ 
is the root of David, of Jesse, who stands as a signal for all peoples to come and worship him. He offered himself as a one-time sacrifice to pay for all of our sins. He bore the righteous judgment reserved for you and for me. He paid it all. Every single drop of God's wrath. But he did not remain dead. Jesus rose again. He conquered death. He conquered the hell that we deserve, the wrath of God that we deserve. And by his finished work on the cross, his death and resurrection, by his blood, he purchased, he made a payment for a people, a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Beloved saints, this is our hope. This is our hope for us, that we can be glad and sing for joy. This is our hope to pray for the global expanse of God's glory, for the global worship of our King. He's accomplished it. He's done it. It's been finished. It will happen. It will take place. Friends, if you're here today and you're still in your sins, you're still running to your idols for comfort, for joy, for pleasure, He calls you today. Repent of your sin. Turn away from your vain idols and trust in Christ. Trust in His finished work on the cross. Believe upon Him and you will be saved. He is worthy of your life and He's worthy of your devotion. And He offers you eternal life, unending joy in God's presence. And He offers this at the expense of Himself. So come, come today and worship Him. Third and finally, we as a church can pray with confidence towards a glorious end. So we pray in view of a glorious purpose. We pray with a joyful hope. And we pray with confidence towards a glorious end. Look again at verse 6. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear Him. So we see in the beginning of the psalm, the author asking God for blessing. And here at the end of the psalm, we see an assurance of God's blessing. In the beginning, he asks that God would bless us. And here, he gives an assurance that God surely shall bless us. He has blessed us and will bless us to the end. Friends, we can pray with confidence because God, our God, has indeed blessed us in Christ and will continue to bless us till the very end. Now, the psalmist here helps us to understand uh, this point with an illustration. Did you see that at the beginning of verse 6? kind of feels out of place, doesn't it? Looking again at verse 6. He says that the earth has yielded its increase. The earth has yielded its increase. What is this all about? What does it have to do with blessing? Well, just look at the verse. The, the word yield there 
carries this idea of harvest. The, the earth has yielded or produced crops. And this word increase tells us that the author is speaking about a bountiful harvest. It's a harvest full of good fruits. Now, what does a full harvest have to do with God blessing the nations? God blessing us and all the ends of the earth fearing Him. Well, remember back in verse 1, how he saw that God's blessing is grounded in God's covenant? Well, the psalmist here is returning to that very idea. He returns to God's covenant with Israel. Remember, God promised Abraham a blessing so that Abraham might be a blessing to all peoples. Now, what was in that blessing? What did God promise? He promised a nation, a name, and land. He promised He promised land, the promised land. This is like a new Eden where God dwells with His people through His covenant. What was lost in Eden because of sin and the fall is now being restored. This land where God reigns over His people, His presence dwells in glory, and we enjoy His covenant blessings. Through the covenant and the atoning intercession of priests, God can dwell with His people and bless them with His presence. Now, under the old covenant, under the old covenant, earthly blessings, like a good harvest, was a sign of spiritual blessing. Say that again. Under the old covenant, earthly blessings was a sign of spiritual blessings. So listen to what God says to Israel in Leviticus 25. He says, You shall do do my statutes and keep my rules and perform them, and then you will dwell in the land securely. The land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell in it securely. So if Israel obeys God's word, loves God with all their heart, soul, and mind, keeps the covenant, keeps their end of the bargain, trust in the provision of sacrifice, God says He'll bless them. And this physical blessing was a sign of God's spiritual blessing. He would increase the harvest. Now, God had commanded Israel every year to bring a first fruit of harvest in worship to God. So when they would bring this harvest to God, these these first fruits as a thanksgiving sacrifice, they would remember, they would see God's faithfulness. They would see how the earth has yielded its increase and will remind them of God's blessing, that God surely is among them. Now, friends, we are no longer under the old covenant. Blessing is not primarily physical in this world. Blessing is in the world to come. We live in this age of the already but not yet. And we look forward to that day, that blessed day in that blessed land. Now, it's amazing, even though we're not under the old covenant, we can still be reminded of God's faithfulness when we look at His creation. So, though this is not true for us, God doesn't bless us spiritually and bless us materially as a sign of that blessing, but we can still go to the grocery store 
If you're, if you're doubting God's faithfulness, just go down the aisle at your local grocery store. Even in this cursed world with these thorns and thistles, so look at the apples and the oranges, the mangoes, the melons, the rice, oh, the rice and the wheat. He's a good, gracious father. It points to his faithfulness. Not ultimate faithfulness in making your best life now, but his faithfulness to bless you with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In Christ, we have the final and superior blessing. You remember what, the, what Paul says in Ephesians 1? That we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. The promised land here pointed forward to that better land, a land that is never in lack, where no chilling winds or poisonous breath can reach that healthful, healthful shore. Sickness and sorrow pain and death are felt and feared no more. When I shall reach that happy place, I'll be forever blessed, for I shall see my Father's face and in his bosom rest. This is the blessing of the new heavens and the new earth. This is assured to us in Christ. This is the confident assurance that all the redeemed have. God has blessed us and he will bless us to the very end. And do you know how we know this? Do you know how we can have confidence? Because God tells us he's given us a guarantee. He's given us a down payment of that future reward. We who have every spiritual blessing of, in Christ were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. It's Ephesians 1, verse 13 to 14. When Christ ascended to His rightful place in heaven, He poured out His Spirit to everyone who turns from their sins and trusts in Him. The very Spirit that rose Christ from the dead dwells in His blood-bought people. Spirit dwells in us. And the Spirit, He gives us everything, everything we need for life and godliness. Under the new covenant, the sign of God's blessing is not in a larger bank account, but in more Christ-like love. The Spirit takes the word of Christ and the work of Christ and applies them to our hearts. The Spirit strengthens the weak. He comforts the hurting. He helps the needy. He enables our faith and he keeps us enduring to the end. God is guaranteed that we will enjoy him now and forever. He is our confidence, and he is our great reward. And until that day, we continue on trusting and obeying. We continue on believing. We continue on looking to Christ. We continue on laying aside weights and sins that cling closely and run with endurance this race of faith. We do this as we look to Christ, our steady anchor, our high king. He is faithful, and he is faithful to us to the very end. So as we're praying that God would bless us, we can pray with confidence because God has blessed us in Christ, and God will bless us to the very end. He'll bless us as we seek to be faithful 
to love God, to love one another. He'll bless us and help us to be faithful to that great commission we talked about at the beginning. Christ's command, His commission. He tells His disciples in Matthew 28, verse 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It is this assurance that gives us confidence as we obey this great commission, as we make disciples of all nations, as we we do that here in this local church, and as we go out there and proclaim the gospel to a lost and dying land. So I want to conclude with, with three prayers, three prayers that we can pray as a local church as we look to that final day. First, we pray that God would bless our evangelism. We pray that God would bless our evangelism both personally and corporately. We need to ask God that He would increase our compassion for the lost and give us a boldness to proclaim the gospel. We need to ask God to give us opportunities to share the gospel with our friends, family, with family members, and coworkers. We need to pray that God would bless our witness as a local church, that more and more people will come, not to build our kingdom, but to hear the word preached and to be saved. Second, we pray that God will send some of us to help establish healthy churches where Christ is not worshipped. So we pray that God will bless our evangelism locally, personally, and corporately. We also pray that God will send some of us to places where Christ is not worshipped. Beloved, though we are small, we as a local church are very blessed. We're blessed with sound preaching, with God the elders, and growing discipleship. Do you know there are places in the world where there's little to no witness for Christ? Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 9, 37, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We need to be actively praying that God would send not all of us, but some of us to places that are more needy for the gospel to partner with planters of local churches, to help strengthen weak churches. Third, and finally, we pray that we we would endure all things for the sake of the elect. We pray that we will not shrink back in fear, but we will endure with confidence and faith. We pray and go knowing that nothing in this world can separate us from the love of Christ. Jesus will receive the reward of his suffering in and through his people. So let us pray that we will endure with eyes fixed on that glorious day when every tribe, tongue, and nation will worship around the throne. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for the blessing of Christ. We thank you for redeeming us from the curse and blessing us with the joy of knowing you. Lord, we ask that the nations would be glad and the nations would sing for joy. We ask that you use us in our weak efforts to spread your fame among all the earth. Lord, we ask that every tribe, tongue, and nation would worship the Lamb who was slain. Enable our obedience by faith and keep us faithful to the end. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.